This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Alison Balance, and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. Spring is marked by many things Kofi and Bloom, baby birds, warmer weather and longer days, the return of the UV exposure index on your favourite weather app. If you're in Antarctica, the sun creeps above the horizon for the first time in months. And for the past 40 years, there has been something new in the air above the frozen continent, the annual spring ozone hole. The hole is a consequence of industrial chemicals, a group known collectively to scientists as ozone-depleting substances. It's a problem that the world took swift action to address, although it's going to take a few decades more to heal. I thought it was time to find out what's happening with the ozone hole and tease out its relationship with ultraviolet radiation, or UV. Our guides on this quest are Niwa's Richard Quirrell and Ben Liley, who work at the Lauder Research Station in central Otago, where all sorts of atmospheric measurements are made. First of all, we catch up on Skype with Richard. We measure ozone all year, but specifically now is when the the ozone hole or the, the thinning of ozone over Antarctica happens. So it happens every spring, a thinning down to the point of almost no ozone at the altitudes where there's the ozone layer. So, you know, 15 to 30 kilometers, that's where the bulk of it is in the stratosphere. So there's still ozone. It's down to maybe a third of what it would be normally. So calling it a hole as if it's empty and there's zero ozone, that's not really true because there's still about a third of it there. But specifically in the ozone layer altitudes, it's down to near zero. And that happens, yes, over Antarctica, uh, mostly because it gets cold enough in wintertime for these polar stratospheric clouds to form. So these really high altitude clouds. And so on the surface of the kind of liquid and solid particles uh, of the clouds, like the ice crystals or the water molecules in this this cloud, you can have chemistry occurring uh, that frees up this chlorine, chlorine monoxide that then interacts and destroys ozone. But all of these ozone reactions are all, all powered by UV light, by sunlight. And so they don't happen in the dark. And so as soon as the sun starts to creep up, that frees up this chlorine that then interacts and destroys ozone. The thinning of the ozone layer over Antarctica each southern spring was first detected from the ground in the early 1980s. The measurements were made using a machine developed in 1924. About 120 were built and about 50 are still in use around the world today. This one is at Arrival Heights near Scott Base. Four, three, two, one, zero. So I'm just turning the encoder slightly backwards and forwards and keeping it 
really close to the zero mark. So there's an instrument called the Dobson spectrophotometer. We have one operating in Antarctica. The instrument itself was purchased in 1937. So it's 83 years old now. Uh, it gets kind of regular maintenance and calibrations and things like that. We take it out and we bring it over to uh, Melbourne and Australia every five years to compare with their regional standard, Dobson instrument, which gets compared to the world standard, which is in Boulder, Colorado, or Mauna Loa, Hawaii. It kind of bounces between the two. And so this is the way that the global network maintains its uh, integrity and soundness. So everything is kind of within about one or two Dobson units of each other all around the world. So that's how you can trust this global network of measurements. Ultraviolet plays an important role in the ozone story. We'll come back to it later. But for now, not only is UV radiation the trigger that sets ozone depletion in motion every spring, but it's also key to how a Dobson ozone photospectrometer works. They work by comparing two different colours of ultraviolet light and then there's a, kind of a ratio between those two. One of them is affected by ozone and one not. And so then there's a kind of a lookup table that you, you point them at the sun and then a certain amount is absorbed by ozone. And then you can figure out how much ozone would have been between the instrument and the sun. So these measurements, of course, they're, you need the sun for them. But you can also make Dobson spectrophotometer measurements in the wintertime if you point at the moon. Because the moon is just a reflector of sunlight. I mean, it's a very weak reflector, but it is sunlight that's bouncing off of it. And so you, you can still make measurements that way in the kind of polar darkness. They're just not quite as good. You have a li little bit more uncertainty in your value. But if that's all you have, then that's, that's what you do. The other measurements that are done during wintertime, people can still launch balloons with ozone zones on them or you can use microwave radiometers. So the atmosphere itself, the, uh, the ozone in it, is emitting microwave wavelength light. And so you can measure that with uh, microwave radiometers that are based on the ground. So at, so at Scott Base, we have a microwave radiometer that is tuned for measuring chlorine monoxide. It's a U.S. Naval Research Laboratory instrument. It's called CHLOE. And so what happens is you can see the concentration of chlorine monoxide build up ahead of this ozone hole. Scientists think of ozone as a column, extending from the surface of the Earth to the very top of the atmosphere. So what defines, then, a Dobson unit? If you think of a thickness, so if you took all of the ozone in the atmosphere and you squished it down to the surface, it would have a thickness of about 3 millimetres. And so this 3 millimetres is 300 Dobson units. So... An average amount of ozone around the world is about 300 Dobson units. So over Lauder in central Otago, we measure ozone throughout the year from about 250 Dobson units up to about 450 Dobson units. So that's kind of the spread, the range that we see over the year. The definition of what is an ozone hole is if it's below 220 Dobson units. And that's just because that was one of the extremes, maybe a lower extreme before there was ozone holes. By comparison, the lowest amount of ozone ever measured over Antarctica was 89 Dobson units, back in 1993. On the 6th of October this year, ozone levels got down to 94 Dobson units, making this year's ozone hole one of the largest and deepest in recent years. 
NOAA and NASA report that at its peak on the 20th of September, it covered an area of about 9.6 million square miles. That's 24.8 million square kilometres. That's the same area as North America. There was virtually no ozone in a 6.4 kilometre high column of the stratosphere over the South Pole. However, in terms of ozone holes over the past four decades, this year's persistent ozone hole, which started forming in mid-August and is still going strong, is only the 12th largest on record. And it's in stark contrast to last year's, which was the smallest, covering a mere 16.4 million square kilometres. So why is this year's ozone hole so big and last year's so small? It's still very much related to weather effects because there's a lot of different contributing factors that come into the size of an ozone hole. So if you have a really strong wind system with polar vortex that really constrains the air over the pole in the darkness and you can have this increased concentration of the, the chemicals that will eventually cause the ozone hole, you're going to have a larger ozone hole. Whereas if you have a weaker polar vortex, well, that breaks up early, which is what happened last year because you had this sudden stratospheric warming event that made that air warm up and be not so cold. And so as soon as it's warmer, you don't have the same kind of cloud formation that is needed for this ozone destruction activity. So that's why you end up having this overall trend of the ozone holes being kind of constant and improving, but you can still have last year was a very small one. This year seems like it's going to be a big one, but I wouldn't look at it worryingly that, oh, all this progress made since last year solved the problem. Now we have a bad one again. You can't really look at it that way. It's more like how you have a long-term climate trend and you can have the weather uh, year to year being higher or lower, or you can have an El Nino effect that kind of pushes an extreme, but the overall trend can still be going in the same direction. This year saw, for the first time, a significant ozone hole three times the size of Greenland form over the Arctic. Ozone levels dropped as low as 205 Dobson units for several weeks. This last year there was what, for all intents and purposes, looks like an ozone hole. Normally, like I was talking about these PSEs, these polar uh, stratospheric clouds, they're needed there to accumulate everything that you're going to make an ozone hole with once the sun hits it. And they only form when the temperatures are below minus 78 Celsius. And so in Antarctica, you can have temperatures uh, that are below that for up to five months. Whereas in the Arctic, maybe only a couple of months will be that cold. So it all depends on the strength of your polar vortex. And if you have this kind of constrained air inside there that can get really cold, cold enough to generate these clouds. And... So normally you don't have that in the Arctic or you have kind of a a weak polar vortex that lets some warmer air in and you you don't get the right kind of conditions to have an ozone hole form. So that's why you normally don't have an Arctic ozone hole, whereas you always have a Antarctic one. But sometimes you can get the conditions where, yes, you have this well-constrained air that gets cold over the uh, Arctic polar night and you do have some of the destruction that goes on. The international community moved very quickly after the 1985 announcement of the ozone hole. The Montreal Protocol on Substances that Deplete the Ozone Layer, to give it its full name, was signed in 1989. It led to an immediate ban on ozone-depleting chemicals such as chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs. The ban has been very effective. 
A 2018 assessment by the World Meteorological Organization found that without the ban, the ozone hole would be about 2.5 million square kilometres larger than it is now. Instead, the hole has been shrinking by about 1 to 3% per decade since the year 2000. Because the Montreal Protocol has been successful and these chemicals are being monitored and controlled, the ozone hole will go away. It's not a tomorrow kind of thing, though. It'll be gone by about 2070, so in another 50 years or so. One thing that came up in the last couple of years, there was some rogue emissions of CFC-11 coming out of Southeast Asia. And because that was seen by people who are monitoring these uh, these chemicals, kind of doing the long-term monitoring, uh, it can be addressed. But because those were being generated, it probably put off this 50 years. Maybe it added another few years to that. So it's important that even though you can argue, ah, oh, this ozone hole problem, it's solved. The Montreal Protocol is successful. Well, only really if people follow those rules and you have to keep people honest by measuring these things. Does the Antarctic ozone hole ever reach over New Zealand? No, never. I mean, if you look at a globe and you look at the size of uh, Antarctica, if you made kind of a halo around Antarctica itself, that would be about as, as big as the ozone hole gets. It'll become oval and kind of roll around a little bit over the polar area. It might touch a bit of South America, but it'll never really be over, over New Zealand. So those ideas of we have to worry here about um, high UV because the ozone hole, that's not really true. But our ozone levels over New Zealand do fluctuate and they do become lower at certain times of year. Can you talk me through that pattern? The measurements that we make here at Lauder, they have a, a low of about 250 dubs and a high of maybe 450. And so we actually get the high the same time the Antarctic ozone hole is happening. So when the low is happening over the pole. We actually have the ozone ridge, as it's called, and that is caused by essentially the same conditions that create the Antarctic ozone hole block the poleward flow of ozone from the tropics. And so it, if you like, dams up over New Zealand and uh, we get higher ozone, therefore relatively lower UV for the same sun angles. This is UV expert Ben Liley, who is also based at Niwa's Lauder Research Station. The problems come when the Antarctic ozone hole breaks up in late spring, early summer, and so right at the time when we're heading out to the beach in the warm weather of December, January, February is when ozone-depleted air comes over New Zealand. It's not a huge amount. It's depleted by a few percent. But they're lowest in New Zealand in the autumn, usually around about March, which actually, because of sort of delays in the temperature system, it also tends to be when we have some of our nicest weather, are sunnier days, and so we actually have our seasonal low in ozone just at the time of year when we're really enjoying the warm days and wanting to get out in it. It sort of returns to average over the summer and then at the minimum in ozone is late summer, early autumn. New Zealand has high levels of UV anyway compared to the Northern Hemisphere. Can you explain to me that bigger picture of why our UV is so it's high? It's an interesting point there. And in fact, I mean, one of the things I say is that the Niwa order, particularly even before the days of NIWA, got involved in measuring UV. Because of concern about ozone destruction, what that research has shown is that actually we should have been concerned about New Zealand UV intensity, even if there'd never been an Antarctic ozone hole, because 
it's about 40% higher than at equivalent latitudes in Europe and North America. In terms of where we are in the world, the North Island is sort of opposite southern Spain. The South Island stretches from northern Portugal through into the Bay of Biscay, if you like. So our uh, latitude anyway would put us in the sort of sunny southern Europe. And so really we have higher UV perhaps than we were expecting if we think of ourselves as more like northern Europeans. But even relative to comparable latitudes, it's quite a bit higher now. Part of that is because of differences in uh, natural stratospheric ozone distribution around the world. A chunk of it's because we have uh, less tropospheric ozone. We're in the lower part of the atmosphere, and the troposphere ozone is a pollutant. Well, it's a an unwelcome gas, if you like, but it's chemically highly reactive and, and causes problems for, for people. It's a product of air pollution in many places in the world. And so, you know, it's, it's one of the uh, problem gases in photochemical smog, for example. So we have lower ozone because of that. There's another effect because of the Earth's orbit that the Earth is about 3% closer to the sun than average in our southern hemisphere summer. So if you like, we go through summer as we're slightly closer to the sun. So that produces about a 7% increase in radiation generally, particularly UV. Um, so if you like, it's our summers are a bit hotter and our winters are a bit colder than they would be otherwise if, if we had the, the northern hemisphere pattern. So all of those effects account for about half that 40% difference and the other half we're still trying to understand. It's some combination of aerosols and clouds and it's an active area of research. So we should really be thinking about UV just completely uncoupled from anything to do with ozone. So there is the ozone hole and then we have the UV situation in New Zealand. Is that right? I wouldn't uncouple it from ozone. Ozone is still one of the biggest effects, but... If you started from the top, what are the things that most affect UV intensity? Number one is how high the sun is in the sky, at least for clear skies. The biggest single effect that attenuates ozone, that affects ozone, then is clouds. And, but, of course, that's a sort of a fairly obvious one. It's not quite as simple as it seems either because cumulus clouds block the sun quite effectively, but high cirrus hardly at all, you know, thin cloud. And we don't have a strong natural sense of what the UV climate is. Uh, if you could see UV, the sky would be a UV colour because half of all the light coming in from the sun, even on a sunny day at fairly high sun, is diffuse radiation scattered from all over the sky because of the, the way UV is much more strongly scattered. So in the UV, you have a very bright sky. So even when you're in the shade, you're not as protected as you think you might be. But the biggest thing is that our sense of how much energy there is in the sun is really just how much you know, infrared or total radiant energy we're absorbing. That's not much of a guide. It can, for example, you know, even when the sun is quite low on the horizon, if you're facing towards it, you can really sort of bask in the warmth of the heat of the sun 
but actually there'll be very little UV in that radiation. The sun is down at you know, 10 degrees above the horizon, UV's down to a very low amount. Whereas, you know, you can get a situation where the sun is high in the sky, but the air is fairly cool, and we don't appreciate the risk. So the situation for New Zealand is that we are at high risk of UV because of a combination of factors. Including clean air. Clean air is one of them. One big effect, of course, is that many of us have, if you like, the longer skin type for where we live. You know, I said we're opposite Spain or southern France. You know, we should all have swarthy skins or indeed brown skin, like people who are evolved to live at this latitude. Um, those of us who don't have to be a lot more careful. Many of us, our ancestry goes back to um, Celtic skin types of, you know, northern UK or from Scandinavian skin, you know, very pale skins, which are good for living at high latitudes because they help you make vitamin D, but they're not good for living at this latitude. So, so that that's a major contributor. But even then, that doesn't sort of, to my mind, fully explain it because New Zealand has the worst melanoma rate in the world in terms of occurrence rates and, and death rates. And Australia follows close behind. We sort of jockey with position for them on the <laughs> in a competition we don't want to win. But it is a, odd in a way because there are pale-skinned people living all over the world, including in the tropics, where UV intensities can be substantially higher than here. In other words, we have high UV in New Zealand, but it's nowhere near the world's extremes. You know, we get up to maybe UV index of... 13 or 14 northern New Zealand and northern Australia it gets up to 15, 16 and you know in the Altiplano region in South America you have 30 million people living in a, an area where the UV index can get over 20. So it's not that we are the highest in the world but what we do have is very high UV levels for a relatively cool climate. In other places in the world where the UV is getting really high at the times when it's very high, people are tending to seek the shade because it's too hot to be out in it. And yet we have measurements, for example, of a UV index of 13 in Invercargill at a time when the air temperature is 18 degrees. I mean, if you were there at that time on a lovely sunny day, you'd be basking in the sun. But actually, you know, the UV risk is very high, it's extreme. And so it's a combination, as I say, of... We have clean air, a bit closer to the sun in our summer. Ozone depletion is slightly worsening conditions, but even without that, our cool climate makes us underestimate the risk. Yeah, it just lulls us into a false sense of security, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Just going back to the ozone hole, if we hadn't enacted the Montreal Protocol and the Antarctic ozone hole had continued to increase at the rate it was increasing... What effect would that have had on the UV index? Have we worked that out? Yes, indeed. There was a very interesting study looking at that, using the UV measurements from all the sites like water around the world and then comparing that with the world avoided, as you might call it, which is um, what we can show is by modelling the UV as it's occurred with the measurements of atmospheric composition as, they, as it was tracked, and you then go back and in the model turn off the Montreal Protocol or uh, you know, allow the, the chemistry of ozone depletion, you know, allow the 
with CFCs to keep on increasing the chlorine levels to increase. And yes, by 2050 or 2100, you get to a really some very extreme conditions, you know, the, the index of 30 and things like that. And it just, even you get badly sunburned even in a few minutes in the sun in, in many places in the world. Yes, that study showed that indeed, A, the Montreal Protocol really did work extremely effectively, but also, yes, quite scary how bad the world could have been without it. Thanks, Ben. Ben Lyley is an expert in UV, and we also heard from Richard Quarrell, who is an expert in measuring atmospheric gases. They are both at Niwa's Lauder Research Station in central Otago. And as to this year's ozone hole... It's still there, it's still very large, and there are still only 130 Dobson units of ozone, so there's a way to go before it heals for the year. And UV levels are extreme over New Zealand, so do take care in the sun. By the way, there's an interesting climate twist to this tale. Ozone-depleting CFCs are powerful greenhouse gases, and they contribute to global warming. The resultant ozone hole, on the other hand, creates a cooling effect in the southern hemisphere. From that point of view, there's been a slightly ironic climate benefit to the ozone hole. Its cooling ability has, to date at least, outweighed the warming created by ozone-depleting substances. That offset will of course be lost as ozone loss reduces in the coming decades. This whole area of interactions between ozone, ozone-depleting substances and climate is complicated, and it's an active area of research. It involves large climate system computer models. Results from these models will form part of the forthcoming assessment by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, as scientists around the world update our knowledge about the warming world we inhabit. And speaking of large meetings and making the point that the depletion of the ozone layer is still an active area of concern, This week marks the 12th meeting of the Conference of the Parties to the Vienna Convention for the Protection of the Ozone Layer and the 32nd meeting of the Parties to the Montreal Protocol on Substances that Deplete the Ozone Layer. I'm Alison Balance. In this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 26th of November 2020, you can listen again at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can also sign up for our free email newsletter at the webpage. I'll send you story links directly to your inbox. The subscription link is at the bottom of the webpage, along with our curated collections of archive stories, such as Birds and Antarctica. If you're after some new podcasts and video series, do check out the podcast tab at rnz.co.nz. I'm watching Someday Stories, which is a series of six sustainability-focused short films by emerging New Zealand filmmakers. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Stay safe and catch you next time. Kia mai. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.